The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah chapter 8. Yesterday we did celebrate our nation's 244th birthday. Uh, every year on the 4th of July, we are reminded of the great sacrifice that was, has been made through these past two and a half centuries by men and women who uh, have served in our wars. And not only that, uh, we think about those who have served in government. Uh, it's not, maybe not as much of a, of a chore for people in great sacrifice to serve in government today as it was in years past. I mean, when our founding fathers found this nation, they weren't getting rich off of governing. Uh, but we are thankful for all those that have made these sacrifices that we would have our freedoms, especially this freedom that we have to be here and gather together and to worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we're all aware, of course, that this year, there's been much controversy about uh, our freedoms, especially the freedom of religion. And people have argued about this. Did the government overstep its bounds in the COVID-19 response? Did they go beyond the powers that are granted in the Constitution? And there are many who believe that the First Amendment was unlawfully suspended when the government ordered the shutdown of churches. I think most of you know where I stand on that, and it's not my purpose to revive that controversy today. I don't want to preach about that. I have an opinion, and I'll just briefly express it, that I, I believe that many of the protests were a knee-jerk reaction to those who find nefarious intent in every single thing that the government does. I find that to be a problem. But regardless of that, Worship on this Sunday morning certainly does feel different, and it has for these past few weeks, than any other period in our lifetime, and even I might say in the history of our country, that we've not experienced what we experience now. And one of the reasons that I think that it seems so different is that our country is not slowly drifting away from Christian principles. But I think that we're headed out to sea with the power of a speedboat trying to get away from God. Today, the numbers of people that identify as Christian are dwindling. And among those that do identify as Christian, who say, yes, we are Christians, their Christianity is not biblical Christianity. That is, the Bible is not what rules their faith and practice. I've always loved the study of American history. I especially like to learn about the faith and the vision of our forefathers when this nation began. And without, without doubt, uh, this nation started with a, with a need for physical elements that are necessary for nation building. All of those had to be in place. But I also truly believe that our founding fathers were, were genuinely concerned about our country's spiritual development. And in the downgrade of Christian moral principles over these past um, few decades, we, we find that our children, the schools, are teaching revisionist American history. Or in other words, what they tried to do is to rewrite history to obliterate what our founding fathers believed about God. 
and about their abiding faith in God. And so we're told that men such as Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin were not men of faith, but they were agnostics, and their ideas of separation of church and state meant that religion really shouldn't have a place in America's government. And I would tell you that is revisionist history. Neither Thomas Jefferson nor Benjamin Franklin or some of our other founding fathers are what we know as born-again Christians, yet, yet they certainly did believe that the Bible and God should be acknowledged to the fundamental operation of right government. In fact, when the Declaration of Independence was signed, the first sentence that's in that document is that the Creator is the one who gave us our basic human rights. In other words, it's God Himself who is the foundation of human rights. And we don't derive those rights from our government. They come from God. And you don't have to go all the way back to the Declaration of Independence to find out that that same thought permeates American history. Woodrow Wilson who was a born-again Christian, and lately Woodrow Wilson's name has certainly been defamed, hasn't it? But Woodrow Wilson, a born-again Christian, said, America was born to exemplify that devotion to the elements of righteousness which are derived from the revelations of Holy Scripture. And friends, when he said Holy Scripture, he didn't mean the Koran. And he didn't mean the Book of Mormon, and he didn't mean the Veda of the Hindus. No, he meant the Holy Scriptures, the Word of God, the Bible that Jehovah God gave us. These men believe that right government can't exist without acknowledging the right God, and that God is the one who rules the affairs of men. And so what I propose to you today is that for our nation to survive and for our freedoms that we cherish to, to be ours into the future, we must get back to the original principles on which this nation was founded. As you know, I'm not a political preacher. I, I don't believe in pushing party politics from the pulpit. I don't believe in trying to legislate morality. I don't think that we can. I don't think that we should. I would say that God has given us enough laws to live by. We don't, try to, don't need to legislate anymore. But I also know this, that America can't change until the hearts of its people are changed. And that's what the church is here for. That's our purpose in the world. This is what we do. We preach the gospel of Jesus Christ that changes hearts, and thus it changes our morality. Now, I want to examine, I want us to examine the book of Nehemiah this morning to find a challenge for modern Christians. This ancient text can give us good insight into what it takes to rebuild this nation. Now, if you have read the book of Nehemiah, uh, you'll find, uh, or you know, that the first seven chapters are about rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. The first seven chapters are about Israel returning, Judah returning from captivity in Babylon and reestablishing Israel, and consequently, consequently, that first part is about meeting the material needs of the people. But for the nation to truly be rebuilt, the spiritual needs of the people needed to be addressed. This is the reason that they were coming back to Jerusalem, and that is 
They were coming back to the worship of the one true God. And that was absolutely necessary for God to bless the nation. And today, as we think about the birthday of our nation, I want to speak on the subject of rebuilding righteousness in our nation. And to rebuild righteousness here, our spiritual needs must be met. So we take this from the 8th chapter of Nehemiah. I want to read just a few verses here. We'll skip some parts because I want to spare you the mangled pronunciation of names. But as we read this, I do want you to stand, if you would, as we read God's Word. And you'll understand in just a moment why I've asked you to stand as we read this portion of Scripture. Nehemiah chapter 8, beginning in verse number 1. And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate, from the morning until midday, before the men and the women, and those that could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive under the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood, which they had made for the purpose. Down to verse number 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with lifting up of their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Verse number 8. So they read in the book of the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. And Nehemiah, which is a Tershatha, and Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people, said unto all the people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not, nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet, and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto our Lord. Neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Once again, this is the Word of God. Thank you. You may be seated. The first seven chapters of Nehemiah concern the physical rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. These were destroyed by the Babylonians when Judah was taken into captivity. Seventy years later, there was a remnant of the people that returned from the captivity to see the broken down walls and to find a destroyed temple. And then a little less than 150 years later, Nehemiah, who was appointed to be the governor in Judea, he was appointed by the Persians who ruled the world at that time, Nehemiah started to rebuild the walls, and he accomplished a miraculous feat of rebuilding these walls in only 52 days. Now, in the eighth chapter that we've just begun here reading, the rebuilding was complete, and now the focus changes from the material needs of the people and getting that wall built. It, it changes to the spiritual needs of the people. 
During the 52 days of rebuilding, Nehemiah prayed for the people and he continually reminded them that they belonged to God and they were to be separated from the world. And so from this eighth chapter until the end of Nehemiah, making that separation from the world, that is the prominent message of the book. In the eighth chapter, the spiritual renewal of Israel is intensified as Nehemiah the governor steps into the background and now he lets the spiritual leader of Israel take over. Now, Nehemiah was certainly a good leader. He was, but he knew his place. And so he stepped aside and he turned the spiritual duties over to God's man, Ezra. Ezra was both a priest and a scribe. And it was his duty to bring the people, read to the people, explain to the people the law of God it's not necessarily Nehemiah's job to lead the people to revival, even though Nehemiah played a very important part. Now, today as we study this, I want to give you three necessities for rebuilding righteousness. These worked for Israel, and I believe they will work for us. Now, let's notice the first three verses of Nehemiah chapter 8 once again. And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. And let me just mention here the water gate. That's one of several gates in Jerusalem that needed to be rebuilt uh, on the different sides of the city. And so they gathered here at this gate that is called the water gate. And there, that's where, of course, they obtain water for the city. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding. Upon the first day of the seventh month, and he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning until midday, before the men and the women and those that could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. What is the first key to rebuilding the nation? Number one is to read the Scriptures. Number one, it's for us to read the Scriptures, to go back to the Bible. The first key to rebuilding righteousness is the Word of God. Now, it's, it's hard to believe that the first step in this great calamity and turmoil in which we live today is just a simple one, just a very basic one. And yet there never will be a revival of any people unless the Word of God is the foundation. When Bible reading is neglected, you can expect that the spiritual values of the people, that consecration to God will be the first thing that goes. We must have the Bible. And so this is what Ezra did. He brought out the Bible. Now back then that was the law of God. And he began to read the book of the law. And he said, what we need to do is to go back to the commands of God's law. Let's no longer ignore that righteousness and holy living. These are demanded by God. And this is the key to our success. And so Ezra brought out the scrolls. And there were many of them on which the word of God was written. And he took the Torah. He took this Old Testament law that God gave. The books of the Moses. And he began to read. Now, reading the Word, that was a reminder that they were God's people. That their nation was not a nation that was built upon their material wealth. 
It was not a great nation because it was fortified with a wall that was built around the capital city. Walls can be torn down. And it was evident that they could because they had just finished rebuilding a wall that had been torn down. So their strength was not in the wealth that they had. It was not in their armies. It was not in their fortifications. And I hope that you remember that in the Exodus, when God brought Israel out of Egypt, that he made them a nation of laws. He took the laws that were written on the human heart and he codified them on tables of stone. This happened at Mount Sinai. And you also remember at that time that God told them that they were not to trust in their might. They were not to fear the walled cities that were in Canaan. And they were not to believe that their armies, that horses and chariots, would be their strength. No, their strength was in the Lord. He's the one who chose them. He's the one that made them a great nation. And they were a great nation because God is great, not because they were great. And I would challenge our nation not so much to think about making America great again, but to realize that God is the one is great. And only by trusting God is any people going to be great. Now, if we expect to right the wrongs of our nation and the same return to the word that Israel had to do is necessary. In the words of Woodrow Wilson again, this nation was made to exemplify righteousness as it is revealed in the Holy Scriptures. And so we must go back to our roots. We must go back to the same ideals of our founding fathers had, what they had when they built the nation, that they came to this country with Bible in hand, and they came with respect for the Holy Scriptures. And they held up the Bible as the foundation of all laws that are made in America, because these are the very same that we find that Ezra read 2,500 years ago. All of our laws as a nation ultimately come back to the laws of Moses, to what's read What's said in the Old Testament? When speaking of the pilgrims who came to America, Daniel Webster, who was Secretary of State and who also served in the U.S. Congress, said the Bible came with them. And it is not to be doubted that to the free and universal reading of the Bible is to be ascribed in that age that men were indebted. Listen, men were indebted for the right views of civil liberties. In other words, when the Bible is taken out, civil liberties are destroyed. Now remember, the Declaration of Independence said it is the Creator who endowed us with these inalienable rights. And so we look at America today, and and where do we go to trace the immorality of public and private life? I think that we could probably trace it back to the time when the Bible was taken out of our schools. You think about when did discipline begin to crumble? When the Bible was taken out of school. When did drugs and violence become an everyday part of our culture? When the Bible was taken out of our schools. Now people are complaining today that now the police need to be taken out of our schools because everybody's against the police. Well, why are the police there in the first place? It's because there is no discipline. It's because the Word of God is not there any longer to teach our children every morning as they begin their day to read from the Bible and, and to recite the Ten Commandments, things that we used to do when I was in school. 
We didn't have those kinds of problems when we had the Bible in the schools. To ignore the Bible is to forget our roots. The founders of our country would never have imagined that American people would, would totally reject the value of the Scriptures. But it's not just the secular society that has rejected the Bible. We also find this is true among the religious. That in our country today, religion, those who call themselves Christians, have rejected the authority of the Bible. And so we find that the Bible is no longer preached from the pulpit. The seminarians tell us that the Bible is not truly the Word of God, that not all of it is inspired, that you can't take the Bible literally. So what you need to do is just pick and choose the parts that suit you, take part of the Bible, read, leave the rest of it that you don't like alone. Folks, that's the reason that in this church we emphasize expository preaching. And this is because when you take the Bible and you teach it book by book and you teach it chapter by chapter and verse by verse, you're forced to deal with all those passages you don't want to deal with. You have to preach those just like you do everything else. And you find and you believe that all of the Bible, the entirety of it, is the Word of God. All of it is true, and that is the reason that we preach all of it. We want you to understand the Bible, that the Bible is the gold standard. It rules our life and our practice, and we will not be great if the Bible is ignored. And so we must read the Bible, we must live by the Bible. Historical revisionists tell us that religion did not rule the lives of our founders, and they say that they didn't want religious principles to rule our government. And I would just ask you, is that truth? Or is that a lie? I want you to hear a statement by George Washington. And after you hear this, you tell me whether you believe that George Washington was a committed Christian. I believe that George Washington is one of those founders who actually was a born-again Christian. And after you hear this statement, you'll understand why I say it. And I will mention as well that this is the same George Washington that had his statue recently torn down by anarchist. This is what he said. O oh, most glorious God, remember that I am but dust and remit my transgressions, negligences, and ignorances and cover them all with the absolute obedience of thy dear Son that those sacrifices of sin, praise, and thanksgiving which I have offered may be accepted by thee in and for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ offered upon the cross for me. Direct my thoughts, words, and work. Wash away my sin in the immaculate blood of the Lamb and purge my heart by the Holy Spirit. George Washington said more in that statement than most preachers know today about the Bible. His prayer was eminently doctrinal. In this prayer, you find total depravity. You find the imputation of Christ's righteousness. You find the vicarious blood atonement of Jesus Christ. You find here the essential work of the Holy Spirit and the conviction of sin. And I would ask you, is that not a profound summary of the exact things that we teach in this church? These are godly founders of our country whose statutes are being torn down torn down to be replaced by godless transgender heroes. I was just reading in the paper the other day, uh, yesterday I think it was, 
Christopher Columbus was not the founder of this country, we know that, but Columbus statue in New Jersey is being taken down to be replaced. There's a petition to replace it with a transgender black activist. Do you know why preaching today is so anemic? It's because preachers haven't learned enough of the Word of God to give their congregations anything more than skimmed milk. It's fairy tales. It's lightness. It's happiness. It's, it's, it's what? I don't know. Today, today, preachers go to seminary to major in psychology, major in church growth systems. But what about the Word of God? Who's teaching the Word of God? What about being a student of the Word? Because that's where you learn to live out the life of Jesus Christ, and you learn how to live your life for Jesus Christ. I want you to look at the high regard for the Word that's in this text. Look at verse number 5. And Ezra opened the, book of, uh, opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above the people. He was standing on a pulpit above the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with the lifting up of their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Soon, as Ezra picked up that scroll and began to unroll it, the people stood did you know that today in some churches in Scotland, they still make it a practice that the whole congregation stands when a person who is called the beadle, that's a B-A-D-L-E, a beadle, carries in the scriptures. And the services begin with everyone standing, and the beadle carries in the Bible, he places it on the pulpit, and then the minister begins the reading. Why do they stand? Why do they make a ceremony of bringing the Bible into the church? Well, it's simply reverence for God's Word. The Holy Bible is the revealed Word of God. And the Word of God demands our utmost respect and reverence. I mean, do you think there is reverence for God when in our churches today they never emphasize that you should bring a Bible to church? You can listen to sermons and you never hear the Bible. I can't imagine that we wouldn't emphasize that we need to have a Bible for the reading and studying of God's Word. That's the most important thing this church does. I love the singing. You know I do. And I love to read those words, as I've just said. And they're singing. If we can't sing with our mouths, they're singing going on our heart. But the Word of God itself is the most important thing that we do. This is when God speaks to us. But some people go to church where the Bible isn't open for the sermon. Sometimes there might be one scripture read, no scripture read, and then the preacher will proceed to tell you what's going on in the world today, what's going on in the newspaper, what's going on in the latest magazine that came out, what's going on in the latest movies that are uh, playing in the cinema. And they take sermons from those and object lessons from those, and that's what they build sermons out of. And this is the reason that I detest drama presentations in the church. It's the reason that I don't like passion plays. It's the reason that I don't like movies that many people believe. This is the way that you win people to the Lord because I know that's not what God's Word says. It's the Bible that we're supposed to use to preach to people. It's the Bible that convicts the heart of sin. We are born again by the Word of God. And so it must be preached. That's why we preach it. And what we ought to do is to get that Word down into the depths, the living Word of God, into our souls. 
Now, it's sad to say, I mean, it's sad to say for us that there are people now in other parts of the world that have more reverence for the word of God than we do in this country. Before the fall of communism in Eastern Europe, there were people who stood for hours in crowded churches to hear the Bible taught. Oh, but my struggle is to keep the sermon short enough that people don't turn me off in boredom. The recommended guidelines for worship in this pandemic are to limit our services to an hour. Now, you've already learned that's practically impossible for me to do. The official guideline of the state of California, and I can show it to you, says that religious speeches, what we would call sermons, are to be shortened. And I said, well, if we're going to hold services to an hour, it won't be because we shaved time off preaching the Bible. That's when God speaks to us. He speaks to us through his word. You know what I expect, too? I expect that all of you will support the preacher, no matter how long it takes for me to get through the message. And I notice here, as we read this text, that these people weren't angry when Ezra opened the Bible. He read words that struck them to their heart, and they realized they'd not followed the Lord. The book of the law showed them they'd fallen short in their duty to God, to the God who built their nation. And they didn't read for an hour. You saw there that they read throughout the morning. The ninth chapter says that they read for one-fourth of the day. That's talking about the daylight hours. And so they began with reading for uh, three hours of daylight. And then beyond that, they went into their confession and, and talked about their sins. And they worshiped God for that whole day. And when they heard the word, verse number 6 says, they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Verse number 9 says, the people wept when they heard the words of the law. How many times do you see that reaction to the word of God when it's preached? When are people so burdened with their sins, they bow their faces to the ground and they weep? The reaction we get many times too many times, I think, is not sorrow, but anger. Anger, because the preacher said something they didn't like. Oh, the preacher stepped on my toes, and it's not his business to meddle in my affairs. Friends, when it comes to the Word of God, you need to listen. You need to take it in. And be thankful if you have a pastor that gives it to you straight. Support the man of God. Encourage him to keep on preaching. Alexis de Tocqueville said, and you've heard, probably heard this comment many times, because anybody who, who preaches on this subject reads this comment by de Tocqueville. And as I read it now, you would probably think, well, that's almost comical. It's almost comical by what we know about our churches today. But this is what he said. I sought for America's greatness. I found it not in her fields and forests. I found it not in her mines and factories. I found it not in her Congress and great tribunals. It was only when I entered her churches and heard her pulpits thundering against sin and preaching righteousness that I discovered the secret of her greatness. When he wrote that, it was about the time of the first great awakening. If Alexis de Tocqueville were alive today, he would never say that. He would never say that about our churches. That's not a statement that can be made. One that can be made is that America will be great when the pulpit returns to the word of God and not until. Nehemiah knew this. Ezra knew it. 
There'll be no greatness. There'll be no revival. There's no success. The nation will not be rebuilt until we decide to go back to the basics, go back to reading the Bible and living by its principles. Now, you see, also it says the words were read and they gave the meaning of the scriptures. Verse 8 says, so they read in the book and the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. That, that's what preaching is for. That's what I'm doing now. Read the Bible. That's what we're supposed to do and honestly explain the meaning of it. Preaching is not for pushing the preacher's agenda unless that agenda is explain the word of God. You need to know what the Bible means. And that's what I attempt to do for you every Sunday when we get in the pulpit. We want you to know what the Word of God means. So my job is to give you the Scriptures and help you make sense of them. But I won't make sense of them and you won't make sense of them unless it's the Holy Spirit who guides us into truth. Well, let's go on. To rebuild our nation in righteousness, it is necessary that we read the Scriptures. Coming up in some later sermons in this month, we're going to talk about some of these things again. But we must read the Scriptures. Now, secondly, we need to rejoice in salvation. David prayed that God would restore the joy of his salvation. You know when he said that? He said that after his sin with Bathsheba. When he sinned, sin robbed him of his joy. And so he asked the Lord to cleanse him from his sins and restore the joy of his salvation. We can't and we won't rejoice. The people of God can't until our sins are confessed. Now look at our text and see if their joy was marred by their sins. In the ninth verse, for the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Why did they weep when the law was read? Well, I think the first thing we might say is they had not listened to it for so long. Uh, the Bible's refreshing to the people of God, isn't it? To hear the word of God, doesn't that lighten your eyes? Like honey in the honeycomb? Does it kind of brighten you up? Give you energy to hear the word of God? That's part of it. But the most important part of it, I think, is because the character of the law is to expose our sin. As Paul wrote in Romans 7, he wasn't clear on some of these things until he understood the purpose of the law. Now, he knew the law could never save him because it exposed the vileness of his sins against God. And before we get our joy back, we must go to God and repent of our sins. These people heard the word, and so sorrow for their sins struck them down deep. They didn't turn to their neighbor and say to their neighbor, hey, buddy, you sinned. That's not what they said. No, they were saying to themselves, I have sinned. With introspection, they looked deeply within. They acknowledged their sins and they began to weep. That doesn't happen too much in church like it used to. I remember a time when people used to weep over their sins and they'd hear a message and the word of God would just strike them down deep. But today... You preach a message, and for most of the people, it sails over their heads. And they look around the congregation, and they say, Well, I wonder who he's talking about. Who's he talking to? And the message, message just whizzes by their ears. They watch it go by, waiting to see who it lands on. 
Do you know that it's rare that I ever pick on anyone with a sermon? That I have purposely designed a sermon to preach to somebody in the congregation? Most of the time, I don't do that because I don't need to. I don't because the Lord has the sermon in mind and who needs to hear it. And I don't know who that is. Sometimes people will come to, to me after a sermon and they say, hey, I was convicted by that. I was convicted by that. And that's the only way that I know that the sermon worked on somebody. Other times, I never know which Cinderella the shoe fits. Now, you never take a sermon and see, well, how does that apply to everybody else? How does that apply to Sister Sally? I mean, how does that apply to Brother Jones? No, you take the sermon, you see how it fits you, and very often you'll find that you are the Cinderella the shoe fits. You will rejoice in your salvation when you have your sin problem straightened out. Miserable Christians are ones who are not in the Word and living the Word. Isaiah wrote the words of God. But your iniquities, Isaiah 59 verse 2, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. It is a miserable time. There is no joy in salvation when you know that door is shut and God does not hear. Plainly, the scripture says he won't hear unless you repent of your sins. Your sins cause him to hide his face from you. He won't hear unless you see sin as God sees it and you confess it and forsake it. 1 John 1, 7 says, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanses us from all sin. So if you want your joy back, examine your life. Check out the sin and confess it and repent of it. Now look at another key to rejoicing. This is in verse number 10. Then He said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet, and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto our Lord. Neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. I believe it was proper that the people should begin with sorrow over sins. And then what happens when we recognize sin, and when we sorrow over it, and then we turn from it, what happens? Well, the scripture says that it turns into joy. Because the same word that wounds us also heals us. Jesus said, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Mourn over your sin, and then you will be comforted. Now, but look at this next part. Rejoicing manifests itself when Christians share. When you are healed, when you are revived, that's the time to share it with somebody. Then he said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. If you have joy, the joy of the Lord in your heart, and you rejoice in your salvation, this is what you'll find. You've got to share that. You've got to tell somebody about it. You can't hold this in. You can't hold in what God's done for you. Joy and rejo uh, rejoicing multiply when you share with others and when you see others that are sinners come to Christ in salvation. You know, I've never been in a church service when somebody got saved or some sinner got right that all the church didn't say, this has been a great day. It's been a great day. 
I have met with some people who say, well, you know, I, 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 I don't want to, anybody to know anything about me. I don't want them to uh, be aware of any sin that I have. I have some people say, I don't want to go into the baptistry because I'm too embarrassed to do that. You know what I always tell them? There is nobody, there is nobody who joys more in the fact that you went into the baptistry than people in this church. It's a great day when we serve the Lord there is rejoicing. And sometimes I see that rejoicing in the room. I'm not, I'm not trying to tell you that this church is absent of that. No, I think most of you are very, very good Christians. And, 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 and I'm saying some things here just to help guard you and keep a, put it in your minds to think about. But I know some of you weep. I've seen weeping as we sing and pray, and sometimes when God's word is preached, I see weeping, hearts swell with emotion when we think about how great our God is. Jesus said, likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. If you share the gospel with someone, they have joy in their salvation, and you have newfound joy in yours. Angels rejoice. Heaven rejoices. God's people rejoice and so I see people that go out the door and they'll say to me pastor this has been a great day and they don't mean it's a great day because the sun is shining it can be cold outside the wind can be blowing and it can be raining it doesn't matter when God is working in his people it is a great day and people rejoice well let me finish with this to rebuild our nation in righteousness we must read the scriptures we must rejoice in our salvation and then we notice what else must be done number three we must respect the statutes respect the statutes now I might have said respect the statues you know anarchists who would destroy this country are pulling down the statues of great Americans I don't agree with everything that President Trump says. I wasn't even going to say this today. I'm just thinking about it. I don't agree with everything he says. Um, I don't agree when he said that people who tear down statues ought to be given 10 years in prison. I don't agree with what he says. I don't think that's long enough. Give them 25 years. Let them think for a while what... what this great nation was built upon and who sacrificed for it because they're not doing it. They're just destroying things. But it doesn't say, or I'm not saying respect the statues. That's not the point. This is about statutes. That's another term for God's word. The psalmist said, Psalm 19, statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. Now, overall, today our theme has been getting back to the Word of God. This nation will be rebuilt in righteousness, and America will be great if we return to the Word of God. That's Ezra and Nehemiah's method after the walls of Jerusalem were rebuilt. Ezra read the Word. The meaning was explained, and people were convicted of their sins. They saw it over sin. They confessed them, and then the sorrow was turned into rejoicing. But as they read, as they read, they found out not only what they did wrong, 
But they found out what they weren't doing at all. There was a part of the law that they hadn't kept since the time of Joshua. That's ten centuries before this text. Go down to verse number 14. Verse 14, Nehemiah 8. And they found written in the law which the Lord had commanded by Moses that the children of Israel should dwell in booths in the feast of the seventh month and that they should publish and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem saying go forth unto the mount and fetch olive branches and pine branches and myrtle branches and palm branches and branches of thick trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went forth and brought them and made themselves booths, every one upon the roof of his house and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the street of the water gate and in the street of the gate of Ephraim. And all the congregation of them that were come again out of the captivity made booths and sat under the booths. For since the days of Jeshua the son of Nun unto that day had not the children of Israel done so. And there was very great gladness. Also, day by day, from the first day into the last day, he read in the book of the law of God, and they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day was a solemn assembly according unto the manner. Now, here is a part of the law that they had seriously rejected. This is called the Feast of Booze. It's also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Booze celebrated Israel in the wilderness wanderings that they wandered throughout the wilderness and they lived in temporary shelters. And they were to commemorate what God had done for them and bringing them out of Egypt, taking them across the wilderness and bringing them to the promised land. So that was a reminder, building these booths, that Israel lived in tents for 40 years. This is a celebration revived by Ezra and Nehemiah at this rededication of the walls. Now in the New Testament... The people continued to celebrate this feast. And you can read about Jesus and the disciples attending this feast in John chapter 7. It was a festive occasion. It celebrated the harvest. And it looked forward to the time of the Messiah when Israel would live in peace and prosperity. In other words, the Feast of Booze and Tabernacles had a view towards a certain person, didn't it? towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And isn't this fitting, what it celebrated, peace and prosperity that would come with the Messiah? And what is it that we want in America? But peace and prosperity. But you know something? Sadly, we don't equate either of those. Peace and prosperity, we never think, well, the way to achieve that is godliness and holiness and the Word of God. Now, I want to point out that returning to the feast, that might seem like an unnecessary thing. This is a difficult thing. It would be hard. It would be much trouble to go into the woods to look for all these different sorts of branches, whatever trees that they could find, and build these shelters. And they built them everywhere. They're on top of their houses. They're in the street. They're in the courts of the law, uh, in the courts of the, of, the, uh, of, the, of the temple where they built that. And, and they're just all over the place because there's so many people, and they all have to have a booth. And they were just cutting down trees everywhere and cutting off branches for this and that and making these booze. That's a lot of trouble. It's a lot of trouble. And you know, that seems like, it seems like so hard, so difficult. Why do it? Why do this? That's not, not delight in work. That's drudgery. It's drudgery to do this. But you know something? There's a feeling that comes over you. When you're in the center of God's will. David said 
in the psalm that I read a moment ago, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. When you follow the Lord, it's fun. It's joyful. It's right. When you attempt to follow without joy, obeying the Lord becomes drudgery. You know, I mentioned a few weeks ago when that first service that we started back, how we had all these folks out here on a Saturday and we were cleaning the building. And I saw people that weren't saying, you know, it's a, this is just too much. Come over here on a Saturday, spend my Saturday doing this. You know what I found? I found people that enjoyed coming working for the Lord. I found people that enjoyed being in this building again where we've been absent for so long and getting ready for a service. And we had to go through masks. We had to go through cleaning again. We had to get our temperatures checked. We had to do all of this stuff. And that is too hard to do for many people, but not if you have the joy of the Lord in your heart. Not if you have the joy of the Lord. You're glad to do these things. It becomes delight, not drudgery. And so these people followed the Lord, and there was a great celebration. Verse number 17 says, And there was very great gladness. Going back was good, and they found that God always pays dividends when we do our duty. And you might want to write that sentence down in your listening sheet today. God pays dividends when we do our duty. Now, once again, David applauded the statutes. He says in the 19th Psalm, Moreover, by them, that is by the statutes, is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. If there's one lie that the devil persists to tell, it is that you can't have fun as a Christian. If you obey God, your life will be miserable, and you'll miss out on all the joys that everyone enjoys. That's a lie. Now, for sure, the Bible says the pleasures of sin are for a season. It's fun for a little while, but then you find out that sin is a destroyer. Drinking and carousing, that seems like fun. But there's great sorrow when you become an alcoholic. There's great sorrow when you kill somebody with your car. Sex is fun until it brings disease. Affairs, oh, they're fun until they destroy your family and... They get into your church and destroy your church. There's no sin that ever led to a happy outcome. But on the other hand, Jesus said, John 13:17, If you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. So the dividend of obedience is happiness. Christians are miserable without attention to duty. And all of those duties, where are they found? In the Word of God. And so you've got to be a student of the Word of God to find out what you did wrong and find out what you haven't done at all. So what's the key to rebuilding the nation? It's when they go back to the Word of God, they found the law, they read it, corrected their mistakes, and it brought great joy. They went back, they consistently stayed in the Word. Notice the beginning of verse 18. Also day by day, upon the first day unto the last day, they read the book of the law of God. It's an indication that the people asked for daily Bible reading, daily instruction from the Word. And I would tell you that America is missing many of the benefits that could be ours. Now, for sure, I do believe, I do believe that God is still here. He's here because His people are here. His people are those who believe and those who are yet to believe by their election in grace. And God will keep us here until all those that are chosen to believe come to him 
And they will come to him when we share the word with them. So how much better would it be if America were great again because we're all people of the word? And I don't mean patronizing the Bible by holding it up for a photo op without applying every principle that's in it. These are principles of morality and decency. These are principles of respect for human life, for the born and the unborn. These are not principles that lead to protest and looting and destroying public buildings and property and rejecting the authority of the police and of the government that is God-given to protect us. These are not principles of BLM that is Marcus transgender, Marxist transgender supporting an anarchist. These are principles that honor God's word, holiness, the Bible's definition of marriage and sexuality. And if Christians compromise on these and ignore the Bible's teachings on these, then we will be responsible for chastisement and judgment upon this entire nation. And churches that join and support these movements, as so many are doing today, making it a part of what they do, will bring righteous judgment down on our heads. According to our founding fathers, if we leave God out of government, there will be no longer liberty and justice for all. As I said in that, in that uh, update yesterday, the most convoluted thing in people's thinking is that you could have justice by breaking the law. How is that possible? So let me put it to you simply. We need to go back to the Word. We need to find out what we did wrong. We need to find out what we should be doing and do it. America will be great if we respect the statutes and obey them. The foundation for America is God and His Word. And if we go back to it, we can rebuild righteousness in this nation. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Broner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Brian Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roner Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.